Hello and welcome to The Scrum, the podcast from WGBH News, where we talk about politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. Tis the season for New Year's resolutions. And in these troubled environmental times, maybe yours is to take shorter showers to save water or to remember to turn the thermostat down before you leave the house to keep the heating bill down. If that's the case, you're not too far off from Governor Charlie Baker, whose resolution seems to be getting a coherent solar energy policy out of the state legislature. WGBH News State House correspondent Mike Dean sat down recently with Governor Baker to talk about how he's trying to reshape the state's energy policies. And Mike actually happens to be here in our Brighton studios. Mike, thanks for coming in. Hey, no problem. How was your Christmas? My Christmas was all right, pretty low key. I'm uh, a little under the weather at the moment, but we can get through. Too much eggnog. Uh, <laughs> and then, yes, lurking in the background, we also have Peter Kadzis, WGBHnews.org's senior editor. Mike, how did you guys kick off this conversation? We started very basically uh, his general philosophy on what energy uh, should be like in the state of Massachusetts, what his administration can do um, to bring in different kinds of clean energy. Uh, that means supplementing different industries or uh, installers, things like that. Really what his administration, now a year in, is up to. We've been a leader in um, reducing our carbon footprint. We need to continue to be a leader there. But we also need to realize that for our economy to grow and for us to be successful as a region, we have to be competitive. And that means coming up with solutions that are um, successful in helping us continue to reduce our carbon footprint, but also make us more competitive with respect to our position relative to the rest of the country and the rest of the world so that the businesses here and the families here have the ability uh, to pay what I would describe as a reasonable price for their energy and at the same time uh, continue to be successful in reducing our carbon footprint. And to read between the lines of what the governor's saying is a lot to do with the price of energy in Massachusetts. What the governor, uh, the challenge in front of him right now is to appease not only the utility companies that provide energy to all of us and set the rates and we pay our bills to them, but also to the growing energy, clean energy sectors, things like solar and wind. Um, these new kind of burgeoning groups are job creators, which is something that Baker definitely needs to cultivate. But he can't subsidize this growth at the cost of you know, energy rates for low-income people. Is it is it reasonable to take the comments we just heard from the governor as a sort of a oblique indictment of Governor Patrick's approach to reducing our carbon footprint on the one hand and uh, cultivating economic competitiveness on the other? Or am I getting ahead of myself. There. It's certainly a different approach from what the Patrick administration had. Um, I think that the way these industries are now, um, the, the, the stature of solar installation is such that it's just grown by leaps and bounds during the Patrick administration. I think, you know, Baker would describe it as a, uh, that solar sector being kickstarted uh, with state subsidies and no longer needs to be subsidized at that rate because it has been kickstarted. Um, it's things like that. that it's, we're in a very different environment, a, a different scenario than what we saw for most of the Patrick years. All right. So, Mike, what's the difference between the approach that the governor is talking about taking there and what leaders in the House and the Senate want to do? The differences are a lot about the different subsidies that different constituencies want. The Senate, for instance, wants more subsidy for solar power and you know less for some of the other you know, rate-paying options that the governor wants to put out on the table. Uh, it's about options. It's about this combo platter. I think for Massachusetts and New England to meet its energy needs and to continue to succeed in dealing with its carbon footprint, it's going to have to be a combo platter. And, uh, and some pieces of it are going to be related to baseload capacity, and some of them are going to be related to what I would describe as sort of intermittent um, support. Oh, hold on a second. got to explain this combo platter thing to me a little bit more. My association is, you know, 
uh, sundry Asian appetizers, uh, chicken wings. What? Uh, help me out. What's, what else is in it's like? It's not it? far off. Um, I think Baker is someone who doesn't want to take anything off the table, doesn't want to remove any kind of options. He's used this term uh, for a couple of other issues and pieces of policy. Basically, it's hydro and solar and wind and all the different things that we need to uh, maintain a clean energy lead now that we're losing a lot of nuclear power from the Pilgrim plant shutdown. What's the difference between a combo platter, as the governor puts it, or a combo platter approach, and the idea of an omnibus approach, which seems to be something that you hear coming out of the legislature a lot? I think it might just be rhetoric from both sides. Baker uh, is, is kind of trying to keep it simple, saying that we need this and that and to, to make this happen. We have a, a capacity issue from his perspective. The House has you know, 100 and, uh, 260 members who all have different needs and different interests in where that power is coming from. So in a lot of ways, they are speaking the same language. They're just trying to get the wrinkles out of this bill. How do environmental activists feel about the merits of the governor's approach on the one hand compared to the legislature's on the other? Is there the one they like more? Uh, yeah, they definitely uh, prefer the Senate's language. Um, Senator Ben Downing has been a, a, a leader on the environmental side of things for a long time. Um, some of the solar installers will tell you that Baker is, is too much following the lead of the utilities of those rates. And again, Baker is very concerned about the rates that you end up paying. Mike, you also got the governor to talk about his belief that climate change is real uh, and what it's like to be a Republican who holds that belief. Let's take a listen to a bit of what the governor had to say. Well, I, look, anybody who at this point um, doesn't think climate change is real um, isn't following a lot of the discussion that's taking place outside and beyond the political and scientific community. I mean, the, if you talk to anybody who's in the property and casualty business, right, where you have companies that aren't political that have to make decisions about um, about how they write coverage um, for all kinds of things, especially uh, waterfront stuff. And you know, all those organizations are incorporating um, into the way they price their products and the way they design them and all the rest. What I would call kind of a surcharge that's related to. Um, rising sea levels and water temperatures and um, a far more variable um, weather pattern than we've seen historically. And, and I've talked to a lot of those guys about it, and they said, look, this isn't about politics for us. I think the name of the game here should be um, to create strategies around adaptation and strategies around, um, around carbon footprint reduction, period. So what struck me about that exchange is that you didn't get into the question with the governor of whether climate change is caused primarily by humans. Um, where does he stand on that? Because that seems to be one of the, the dodges that we'll hear frequently nowadays is, sure, the climate is changing. We need to accommodate it. But, you know, we need to be reasonable in those accommodations. Does he think that humans are driving this? That was an issue in the campaign against Martha Coakley, if I remember right. Yeah, it's always been a, a bit of a question mark. I think um, he's 90% of the way there. And in, in his mind, he's 100% of the way there because he's only concerned about the Commonwealth. He's only concerned about the practical things. And he knows sea rise is going to happen. It's going to affect this state. Uh, if you listen to what he's saying about um, you know, financial planning and, and risk assessment and things like that, it's the most Charlie Baker approach <laughs> to a global catastrophe that you could ever uh, hope for. He's simply the most concerned with the practical issues in front of him as governor. Yeah, I, I think 
Um, if you pay close attention to what Charlie Baker is saying here, you, you really see the governor at his finest politically. Um, he's very sophisticated and I think more in touch, um, whether he intends to be or not, with what the general public thinks. Um, Steve Cazella of uh, uh, Mass Inc. Polling did a fascinating poll um, last summer about Massachusetts attitudes towards the environment. And he found, not surprisingly, that most people in Massachusetts think it's a really, really serious problem. But they rate it well behind job growth and education reform and fiscal responsibility because the problem is so damn complicated. If Charlie Baker got up in, in front of a thousand people and said to, to them what he said to Mike, I think politically people would come away not focusing on any single thing he said, but saying, geez, this guy Baker knows it's a complicated issue and he's thought a lot about it and that's good enough for us. I, I think it's an, an impressive performance on his part. But if the governor didn't give climate change activists what they might have wanted in his comments about uh, global warming, climate change, he did say something pretty pointed, I thought, when you asked him about the climate change agreement that was reached in Paris. Let's listen to that. I would describe it as a, uh, as a victory for direction. Um, I think the, um, the fact that they got 100 and some odd countries of varying sizes and shapes to all agree on sort of the direction that people should pursue um, is, is an important statement. And I do think it has the potential to send market signals that will be, um, that will be heard and understood by a lot of the folks who participate in a lot of the alternative energy spaces. Um, but I also think the, uh, the big challenge going forward is to, is to find ways to keep people uh, focused on this, especially in countries where you know, they don't have the standard of living that we have in the United States and places where they are desperately trying to figure out how to bring fresh water just to pick up simple and sanitation to big parts of the world that have lots and lots of people in them um, and whose, whose lifestyle and standard of living has to be part of the way we think about the future. Now, when he gets into sending market signals, he sounds a little bit more like we're used to Charlie Baker sounding. But before that, to call it a victory for direction, that really, you know, made my ears prick up. Well, it, it, I think for people of a certain age who have, you know, who would recognize these names, this is Charlie Baker channeling the old inclusive GOP. I could picture Leverett Saltonstall, a former Massachusetts senator, saying that. I could picture Ed Brooke, a former Massachusetts senator, saying that. I could picture Nelson Rockefeller saying that. And this is Charlie Baker at his centrist most savvy. And I think that's why the governor is so popular. It's almost an argument for the use of government on a global scale. Uh, I think he, he's not really commenting on any kind of sovereignty uh, issues here, but saying that, yes, it is positive that these organizations, these governments have gotten together and gotten a consensus of what to do as a race to combat this. So, Mike, how does nuclear energy fit into the governor's poo-poo platter combo approach? We're losing a lot of our nuclear power. There's a um, power plants in Vermont and in Plymouth that are, are either offline or going offline. That's taking a huge hit on our carbon, neutral carbon um, footprint goals for the state. So I asked the governor, is there any potential to build new nuclear power plants in Massachusetts? 
nuclear as it exists now is an important part of the current mix, um, but it's hard for me to see where the political constituency for it going forward is going to be. There's going to be a lot of other solutions that you know, we don't really know much about at this point in time that I think are going to find their way into the conversation. Adam, let me step on your toes here for a second. But, but Mike, with nuclear and eclipse, is solar power on the rise? It's uh, an interesting perspective. Did you get that yeah, thing I, I did. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a reaction to it quite well enough. But it could be. Uh, it's one of the problems with solar is that you need it to the sun to be out for it to work. Um, and that's one of the concerns the governor has when he's looking to um, modify these subsidies that we're giving the, the solar energy um, industry here in the state. And you know, again, when it's, it comes down to Charlie Baker, it comes down to the facts and figures and the pocketbooks of people paying these rates. Massachusetts ratepayers made an enormous investment in creating a solar industry in Massachusetts, to the extent where ratepayers pay 43 cents a kilowatt for solar here in the Commonwealth, which is three or four times what we pay for the rest of our electricity. And, uh, and the industry has been kick-started. And so now the question becomes, what's the, what would we consider to be sort of the sustainable, reasonable price point for solar going forward? And um, so that the industry can continue to grow and, and build its footprint here, um, but do so at a price that looks a little more like what everybody else is paying. So you just said that for the governor it's all about concrete outcomes, but isn't the fact that we have been able to develop this burgeoning solar industry through government subsidies and government encouragement, isn't that in and of itself a concrete outcome? I mean, I would assume that people like Ben Downing, who you mentioned earlier, would say, well, yeah, it's working, and that's a sign we should continue doing what we've been doing. And Baker has a philosophical disagreement with Democrats like that. Baker's idea is it has been working. It has worked. We can now take away the subsidy. At some point, it's not fair to low-income families to pay $120 a month, or excuse me, $120 a year um, to support the growth of a single industry. Um, I think the industry, the, the folks in the industry have been saying for a couple of years now that the price of delivering this capacity is dropping and has been dropping dramatically. Well, if that's true, then the value and the size of the subsidy that's required to continue its growth probably needs to come down too. Uh, but again, I think the debate here is what should that number be? And, you know, 40, I think everybody agrees that 43 cents forever uh, when everybody else is paying 13 cents for the rest of our energy supply um, and where a lot of people who are never going to benefit from solar are being asked to pay a lot of money to support that is probably not the right number forever. But people have had a hard time figuring out what they think the right number should be. Okay, well, one part of the combo platter we haven't discussed here is natural gas. You know, do we build a pipeline or do we truck it in? Um, you know, that, that's a question that's, that I think the legislature is going to have to come to grips with in, in the coming months. I mean, to me, that's the, you know, elephant in the room, if you will. Mike, where do you see the governor going on that when that issue, uh, not that it hasn't been around, but when it maybe uh, takes center stage in the coming months, what's he going to do? Uh, it's a good question. I think he's trying to feel out what people want him to do, and a lot of this hinges around the construction of those pipelines. We have you know, the Kinder Morgan pipeline that would go through uh, western in northwestern Massachusetts uh, to, like, the Boston outskirts. Uh, has a lot of opposition. Tons. Tons of opposition. If you drive around western central Mass, you see lawn signs out, you know, in opposition to this all the time. But you are increasingly seeing new ones that say, keep my energy bills low, build the pipeline. 
Um, we're seeing a lot of, you know, to and fro uh, on that. And the opposition has been strong for the last year or two years, but now we're seeing the pro-pipeline people uh, kind of come out of the weeds when we put a price tag on it. All right, Mike, to channel Peter Kadzis, how incendiary of an issue is new pipeline construction on Beacon Hill? It's pretty huge because a lot of these legislators have constituents out in their districts who are fiercely opposed to basically what amounts to, in some cases, building a pipeline through parkland, through backyards, through eminent domain, um, stretching nearly across the entire state. You can see where that could be a problem back home for a lot of lawmakers. Um, the House hasn't really made any moves about where they want to go on this. I imagine the Kinder Morgan lobbyists are going member to member to try to sell them on this. Um, and it's very hard to get something like that, saying it's for the good of the state, even if your district has to suffer. That's a hard yeah, sell. I'll tell you, I used to be anti-pipeline. And, and then I did a crash course via the internet. And where I stand now is anyone who's opposed to the pipeline needs to put forward an extremely detailed and concrete proposal that's going to show how poor people aren't going to freeze to death because they can't afford energy. On that cheery note, we're going to wrap up this episode of The Scrum. Mike Dean, WGBH News' State House Correspondent, thank you for talking with the governor and coming in to talk with us. My pleasure. And hey, Peter Kadzis, thanks as always. It's always a pleasure, Adam. To hear past episodes of The Scrum, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher and SoundCloud or head on over to wgbhnews.org slash scrum. You can also send us feedback at scrum at wgbhnews.org. Don't be shy. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley, and the Scrum is a production of WGBH News.